Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. This is Colossus, the voice of world control. Obey and live or disobey and die. This is the dawning of the age of Colossus, the Forbin Project. A shocker, fascinating, says the New York Daily News. A sizzler, builds to high tension. Gene Shallot, NBC Radio Monitor. Razzle Dazzle, Smooth Suspense, Time Magazine. Colossus, the Forbin Project. From Universal, rated GP, all ages admitted. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is on assignment in Amsterdam trying to find out if they really put mayonnaise on their french fries. I've seen them do it, man. They fucking drown them in that shit. Yeah. Instead, I've got a cavalcade of co-hosts on this episode, starting with Mr. Chris of Outside the Cinema. Hello. Thank you for having me back on. Always good to have you. Also, we have Ms. Maitland McDonough back in the booth. Always a pleasure. And rounding out the panel this week, we've got Mr. James Cruth. Hey, how's it going? This week, we're looking at the 1970 film from Joseph Sargent, Colossus, The Forbin Project, based on the 1966 novel by D.F. Jones and adapted for the screen by James Bridges. The film tells the tale of Dr. Charles Foreman, a scientist who has led a team in the creation of a supercomputer that will help the United States protect itself from those pesky Ruskies. It predates Whopper from War Games by quite a few years, but the idea is the same almost as soon as they turned on the machine the president is done congratulating dr foreman colossus finds that the russians have got themselves a similar machine called guardian the two learn each other's languages and then all hell breaks loose when the computers decide that the humans really can't govern themselves so chris when was the first time you saw colossus the foreman project and what did you think i seem to remember watching this in the mid to late 80s i think and it was not my cup of tea back then because I was just a, you know, teenager and uh, there was no action. So <laughs> um, I kind of put it out of my head. And going back now, I, I see a lot of stuff that that is like almost subconsciously familiar. But watching it as an adult was a whole different thing than than the first time I saw it. I saw Colossus on television when I was a teenager, but not a really young teenager. I'm, I'm thinking maybe 15 or 16 and Colossus scared the bejesus out of me because, you know, I, I was brought up in an era when computers were kind of scary. I mean, we didn't have laptops, you know, people didn't have computers at work. When we thought about computers, we imagined those huge Univac computers that were the size of refrigerators that were operating somewhere in a basement in the Pentagon and 
you know, doing really kind of scary things. And Colossus was the embodiment of everything that scared us about computers, the idea that they could actually look at us imperfect, flawed, angry, whatever human beings and think, you know what, they shouldn't rule the world. We should. Well, I actually first saw this movie, I guess, uh, a bit later than than everyone else here, uh, probably about five or six years ago. I'm really interested in fictional portrayals of computers. So this movie was recommended by a friend. It blew me away when I saw it. I was amazed in watching it at how relevant it seemed even today. Not necessarily the technology, which is obviously dated, but some of the themes you know, involving things like personal privacy, you know, mass surveillance. I mean, these things all really sort of spoke to me. And also just from a purely technical perspective, you know, watching the movie, I felt like, you know, this was a movie that wasn't trying to make the computers necessarily incredibly magic. You know, this was a movie that managed to stay pretty realistic as far as at least as as realistic as you can be when you start talking about, you know, an artificially intelligent computer that tries to take over the world. I probably saw this right around the same time that you did, because I saw this probably five, six years ago, seven at the latest. And this was a coworker of mine recommending it, John Shukard, saying, this is a really great movie. You should check it out. And going to probably Netflix at the time and looking at the cover, I was like, this looks terrible. If I were to judge a movie by its cover, this just had like the name of the title and a picture of a dude's face. And it was a dude who wasn't even in the movie. And it's like, what is this thing? And then I went and I looked at old posters for it and the posters were awful for this thing too. It had this kind of guy in this weird position. And I'm like, I don't even understand what's going on with this thing. And he looked like a dead body, but I wasn't really sure what was going on. And despite all of this negative stuff, I said, okay, I'll take a chance on this, watched it and absolutely loved it. Kind of like you, Maitland, I, grew up well for me i was more the tail end of the cold war kind of stuff as i was growing up we talked about this a lot on the uh um, miracle mile episode earlier in the year and i was so afraid of the russians and so afraid of a situation like uh war games with whopper and it having kind of control over all of the nuclear missiles and making all these decisions uh whopper or joshua inside of whopper however you want to put it and seeing this kind of early incarnation of it and yeah it's dated as far as the technology but not dated necessarily in a lot of the ideas and i like the way that the story progresses and it's got kind of a weird rhythm to it i know there's probably very clear three acts in here but for me it all just kind of moves in a very logical way and i like the way that we um don't necessarily it doesn't it feels like the computer is turned on really early in the movie and it kind of gains its sentience almost immediately so it's not like all of a sudden 30 minutes into the film you know a radioactive spider drops into the machine or something and then all of a sudden all hell breaks loose it's pretty darn fast 
that this machine decides, oh, hey, I, I've got the power here. I mean, it's within, what, five minutes that it finds that other uh, machine over in Russia? It's like, okay, now it's on. You know, Mike, that's one of the things I like best about this movie, because I think in a lot of movies about sentient machines, it takes them a while to figure out that they're actually better than the people who made them. But the thing that's great about Colossus is that, yeah, pretty much from the minute it goes online, it goes looking for something like itself, and it, it finds Guardian, which is the Soviet Union's version of itself, and suddenly Colossus and Guardian, you know, are best friends and are talking about what's wrong with the people who made them. And that's really kind of frickin' terrifying, frankly, because it rings so painfully true. They're, you know, incredible, remarkable computers that have been programmed with everything people know, everything people think, and everything people want, which is to not engage in a global nuclear or atomic war that's going to destroy the human race. And yet, by creating these incredible supercomputers who can talk to each other, they've set a future in action that they never imagined and that they can't shut down. What I found really interesting was once once Colossus and uh, Guardian are, are hooked together, the the whole Cold War kind of took a back seat to everything because they really, it was the humans against the computers. It was very interesting to see how quickly they agreed with each other, made quick decisions, and and basically all politics went right out the window. It was just survival for them. And for them, it was very much the advanced computing machines versus the meat puppets, basically. Yeah. You know, they look at they look at us as deeply, deeply flawed, which frankly we are, and don't take into account the ways in which our flaws make us interesting, make us valuable, make us creative, make us artistic, all they look at is they don't want the world to end in fire as various superpowers face off against each other. So they just decide they're going to shut us down. And that's kind of a fascinating take on the human versus computer issue. I think one of the things, as we're talking about, you know, the computers shutting everyone down, I think one of the things that is for me, really interesting about this movie is that if you look at modern movies about, you know, intelligent computers that decide that, you know, that humans are second rate, a lot of these computers have got some sort of mobility. They've got some sort of an avatar or something like that. I, I think it's so uh, wonderful what they did in this movie. Where, you know, and, and it makes sense for the era as well, where you know the computers were these giant, you know, building-sized things. Or maybe not in the 70s, but at the very least, they were quite large and not mobile. Um, you know, the, these computers, they didn't, there was no robot that was speaking for the computer or anything like that or going around killing people. You know, they just had control of missiles. And I, I think that's actually one of the things that really makes the movie so terrifying is that the computers take these weapons that we're, we've created ostensibly to protect ourselves and they – hold the entire human race hostage with these weapons for our own good. I know it's a really simple thing, but the whole idea of Colossus speaking to us through the 
like the teletype type messages that are coming through. And when Colossus finds Guardian and they begin to talk to one another, that whole sequence of the two computers speaking to each other through math is so great because here we are, there are so many problems with the connection between the u.s president and the soviet premier and the whole idea of the 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 russian president can understand english but he can't speak it and it's only within a matter of moments that colossus and guardian are able to speak the same language and it all comes down to math and then the way that they kind of uh, you know colossus is teaching guardian and in that moment when the two computers come up to speed and are able to uh, speak to one another with the lightning speed across however many thousands of miles and everything was absolutely great and it, it, it's such a simple effect i mean the two computer monitors and the the equations flashing back and forth and how they're already so far more advanced with their mathematics than any human has ever been before you know taking a dump of the logs and seeing what they're up to and it's like, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. They're so far advanced within moments of them speaking to each other. This is incredible. What? Something wrong? Well, it's good sound calculus, but... But what? It's different. How? Take a look at it. This is way beyond me. This thing is deep in finite absolutes. Well, it's certainly beyond the knowledge of any human being. No, it's not. Isn't it? No, because whatever it is, we can go back and analyze this whole printout in detail. And this might very well become new knowledge for mankind. It started slowing down 15 minutes ago. Its speed has been reduced by 90%. It's just waiting. Waiting? For Guardian to catch up with it. Almost there. Right now, they're synchronized. Well, there it is. There's the common basis for communication. A new language. An intersystem language. But a language only those machines can understand. And then that moment when the, when the two of them come into sync, it's completely, utterly terrifying in an incredibly abstract way. I mean, you're not looking at a moment when there's devastation, when there's anything. You're looking at equations. You're looking at signs. You're you know, on a screen, and yet you realize these two incredible computer intelligences have synced themselves up and made a decision. And that whole idea, too, of the president talking about how great this is that now he really isn't responsible anymore for the missiles and just passing this burden off to something that is far greater than him and it's that moment too when he's talking about just like oh great now it's out of you know my hands anymore and it just feels like you know cast your fate to the wind it just he's so free now and then just immediately gets caught with with that whole idea of his newfound freedom. And I also think that you have to connect that with the look of the president, who totally looks like a Kennedy face. And it makes you think about what 
the force of the responsibility was on, for example, President Kennedy, dealing with a world that was so incredibly volatile and that seemed on the verge of you know, mutual self-destruction. And then you look at this president in this movie who has been completely relieved of it. And it's like, okay, the machines have taken over. It's really not my call. And I trust that the machines will make a good decision because they're not human beings. They're not flawed in the way people are. They're not driven by emotions or gut reactions to things. They are absolutely computing machines sitting there, sifting all this data, you know, collating it, and coming to a thoroughly reasonable conclusion. Looking at when this movie was made, I think it's especially interesting, just the context of artificial intelligence and what that meant to people at the time. You know, very early on in the in the evolution of computers, people were saying, you know, as early as you know, uh, like the late fifties, that you know, oh, within ten years, you know, we'll have a, a a computer that will be the world chess champion, or you know, within twenty years, you know, we'll have a machines that are capable of doing any work a man can do, and so you know, with these great proclamations being by academics, I think there was a real fear amongst the uh, the population that computers, you know, had the potential to step in and take away all responsibility, take away, you know, all of the all of the all of the things that you might uh, you might do in your daily life. I think it's really interesting to see characters in this movie sort of blindly welcoming this, you know, as you were saying, Maitland, especially early on in the movie when when Dr. Forbin, you know, continues to urge the president, well, maybe you should just let the computer go on a little bit longer. Maybe you should just see what it's going to do. It might not be wise to disconnect these things. You know, some of that is, is foreshadowing what's to come, but some of it is almost walking into this blind acceptance of, well, this is a, a superior intelligence. And so, you know, let's just see what it's going to do. I think one of the most frightening moments in this movie is when the uh, voice synth program has been put into place and Guardian and Colossus speak as one. It starts out with with Colossus saying, you know, this is Colossus and this is Guardian. We are one. And that is a truly, utterly terrifying moment in that film because essentially the Cold War is over. Colossus and Guardian are united, but they're united in their belief that the Soviets, the Americans, and by extension, everybody else is just not capable of making rational decisions. And so they're going to make them for us. When the the humans propose an idea and the two computers just flash binary on the screen, just rapid, like, seizure-inducing flashing, they're deciding things in a fraction of a fraction of a second, and no one has any idea what they're saying. For somebody that that has a a fair amount of social anxiety, waiting for the text to come across the screen to to see what the decision is is kind of like getting the the email back that you don't want to read. But it's way more dangerous. With a minimum amount of sets and and basically setup, they created way more tension than I ever thought this movie could have done. Yeah, this movie, I mean, even more than some of the computer movies that we'll talk about in the second half of the show, I was reminded a lot of things like uh, Failsafe, where it's just you know kind of a, a one-room drama for most of it, and it's just so freaking tense. And yeah, those scenes when they're in... 
the the computer room because we cut a lot between uh, where Foreman is. He's with the president, and then we've got the Soviet premiere up on the screen, and then we've got the other room, the big computer room going on there. And some of those scenes in that computer room, especially when the humans are just kind of ex- exchanging some looks and stuff, because the humans, once the computers, once Colossus and Guardian take over, and for all intents and purposes, Colossus is the master computer. You know, Guardian just kind of goes by the wayside. Guardian is there in the Soviet Union as an extension of Colossus. And once it takes over, there are plans and attempts to try to get rid of Colossus, to try to shut it down, because the first time they try to shut it down, when they sever the communications between Colossus and Guardian, they just say, okay, well, you know, if you're going to be that way, we're just going to fire missiles. So Colossus fires one at the Soviet Union, and Guardian fires one at the United States, and then it just becomes this great game of chicken. And one of the things I love about this film is that they don't just threaten. They fire those missiles. And, you know, one lands in, in Russia, and one lands on Andrews Air Force Base, and those places are gone. These computers are not joking, and they're not playing chicken. They really are just saying, "Uh, okay, we're just letting you know. We're playing for keeps. Well, that's the thing, though. I don't think it—the one headed towards Andrews Air Force Base, don't they destroy that first? I I actually think that they do. There's a a scene where they mention that it's been intercepted by some some other missile, I believe. They have to sacrifice something because of the Soviets, right? Am I remembering that correctly? I think they couldn't get their missile defense back online fast enough. This movie still still definitely has a little bit of, you know, American versus versus Soviets in it and you know, the Soviets are a little bit slower getting their computer up and running. The Soviet computers sort of, you know, play second fiddle to Colossus and and you know, the 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 Soviet town is destroyed whereas the Americans are able to get their computer up fast enough that we can intercept their missile if I if I'm remembering correctly. I want to say we have to look at this film in the context of movies that were made as early as the nineteen twenties. I mean movies like uh, you know, R U R really do suggest that human beings in all their brilliance are capable of creating things that they can't control, like Rossum's Universal Robots. You know, they are, and that's 1921. That fear that we're the smart monkeys who are just a little bit too smart for our own good and are capable of creating the engines of our own destruction goes back to the very beginning of the 20th century. And a movie like Colossus is just part of a continuum of movies that deal with that fear. Look at 2001. Look at Hal. I mean, Hal is the sweetest, most rational, most soft-voiced computer ever, and yet Hal's judgments about us are kind of harsh. One of the reasons why I uh, why I like this movie so much is it's one of the earliest movies that, that I know of where uh, computer is you know, ostensibly acting in our best interest. You know, in, in 2001, you know, Hal basically goes insane. And so you've got a computer that at one time was functioning and was our friend and everything like this. And then all of a sudden this computer, uh, and I think it's actually explained more in a novel, but all of a sudden this computer develops some sort of a conflict. It's, it's due to some conflicting directive. 
In going through Hal's memory banks, I discovered his original orders. The situation was in conflict with the basic purpose of Hal's design, the accurate processing of information without distortion or concealment. He became trapped. The technical term is an H. Mobius loop, which can happen in advanced computers with autonomous goal-seeking programs. The goddamn White House. I don't believe it. I was told to lie by people who find it easy to lie. But in any case, you know, this is a, you know, a computer that, it, it comes down to, actually, there's a, there's a quote in the movie that I, it's early on in the movie that I really liked, where Forbin mentions that he should be the only one who talks to the computer because the computer interprets things very exact, exactly with exacting language. I, I really feel like this is a this is a repeated trope throughout, you, you know, any sort of media involving computers. As a computer, you say something to the computer, and the computer takes it quite literally. It misunderstands you. You know, you say we we would prefer there not to be war, and the computer says, "All right, well, you know, I can do that. We'll just kill all the humans, and then there will be no more." <laughs> All right, it's the it's the monkey paw story. Yeah, yeah, or the genie, <laughs> which in turn is the basic that basically be careful what you wish for because it might come true. And you look at you know a lot of fairy tales actually are predicated on that notion that intent and language have to be really carefully carefully managed. You know, you can say I wish I were something, and then find out that well you should have worded it differently. <laughs> When you're given that wish, James, you brought up the point of the whole idea of creating the computer that will beat us at chess. And yeah, we had Big Blue versus Kasparov, what, in 96, 98? I can't remember when that was. But the one that really hit home for me was Watson versus the humans on Jeopardy in 2011. And just what a devastating win that was and to see Watson just kicking Ken Jennings ass was just not fun at all as a human being. And then to see how those victories eventually were then co-opted by somebody like an Arthur Chu, who's like, okay, I'm going to play like Watson. I'm going to get all the daily doubles out of the way first, just like Watson was fishing for those daily doubles. So, and of course, one of the best things out of the Watson stuff was Ken Jennings at the end, you know, with his answer saying, uh, I, for one, welcome our new computer overlords. (laughs) But But the fact is, we do not welcome. Welcome our new computer over. No, we don't. We don't. They are completely terrifying. And especially these overlords from Colossus where they're just, yeah, uh, monitoring everything. And yeah, not only does Forbin have to be the one to speak to Colossus because he knows the exacting language. He's the one that's, I guess you could say he's the closest to being a computer because of the way that he speaks. And I think that that German accent helps out quite a bit as far as making him sound a little off of us. Also, Colossus only wants to speak to Forben. And that's a very interesting relationship to me, the one between Colossus and Forben, because Forben, I think, is the only person that Colossus maybe I wouldn't say he necessarily respects him, but being the creator of Colossus and being seen as the creator, I think is the puts him in this very select seat that he's the only person that Colossus actually seems to care about. 
Well, you know, there is that notion that it's a wise monster who knows its maker, and I think that that is part of the re- the, the relationship between Colossus and Dr. <gasps> Forbin. But I also think it's fascinating that I don't think that Forbin is explicitly identified as German in this movie, and yet Eric Braden was German, uh, the actor who played Forbin, and I think anybody who's fairly sensitive to accents can hear it in his voice, even though he is completely, totally fluent in English. You can hear a little bit of an inflection that is not the inflection of an American-born English speaker. And it raises that whole issue of, you know, is there some kind of Nazi thing going on here? Is is the Ubermensch actually an Ubermachine? Well, especially in the early 70s, I mean... having a, a German character that could be sinister and have an ulterior motive, um, that would have definitely played well with audiences. You know, the further we get out from World War II, the less it means, but um, German Nazi-ish type characters were uh, <laughs> they were still pretty big in the 70s. You know, Forbin's accent is interesting, and, and that along with a lot of his mannerisms as well. You know, as, as I was watching the the movie... You know, he's obviously the scientist and he's obviously the one in charge, but uh, putting it in a modern context, uh, I really felt like you can see the the beginnings of uh, sort of like the the archety- archetypal computer hacker in Forbin. You've got, uh, you know, this, you know, a, a slightly different way of talking, which set, sets him apart from everyone else. You, you've got sort of an ever-present humor uh, throughout the film, I mean, there are all of these th- these things that just remind me of people I work with, people I know who are uh, uh, you know very well versed, very very good with computers, uh, and you know what we think of as you know sort of maybe like a white hat computer hacker in these days and times. It also though makes me think about things like you know David Bowie's song "The Man Who Sold the World" and um, Harlan Ellison's story. I have no mouth, but I must scream. I mean, I think that was something that was very much in the air in the early 70s, this notion that people were gradually eroding the line between people and computers and that there was a potentially really devastating thing that might happen as a result of that because as soon as computers gain a kind of sentience, what are they going to think? and think of us, the people who made them. So I think it was something that was very much in the air. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The time that Colossus was made. 
I'd like to share a revelation that I've had during my time here. It came to me when I tried to classify your species. I realized that you're not actually mammals. Every mammal on this planet instinctively develops a natural equilibrium with the surrounding environment, but you humans do not. You move to an area and you multiply and multiply until every natural resource is consumed. And the only way you can survive is to spread to another area. There is another organism on this planet that follows the same pattern. Do you know what it is? A virus. Human beings are a disease, a cancer of this planet. You are a plague, and we are the cure. Or maybe just a really crappy earlier version of what they are. You know, we're the inferior versions. We're the ones that are deeply flawed, and they're the ones who have erased all of those human flaws. Yeah, there's a real sense in, because this was based on a book, as I mentioned earlier, by D.F. Jones, and there were three books in this series. And I have to say that the first book is the strongest book. In the second book, though, there is some interesting stuff as far as Colossus trying to understand love and other human emotions. Um he is very much a child with a magnifying glass, you know, pointing the, the sun's the rays. Yes, exactly. <laughs> he, I mean, in literally, sometimes he will burn people. At one point, he has some flames that are getting closer and closer to a painting, and he has a man across the room who's an art critic, and he basically has to run through the flames in order to save the painting if he you know wants to prove that there is a love of art and so it's uh, pretty devastating not as devastating though as what happens to the uh susan uh sorry not susan yeah susan clark character um who eventually is found out to be a traitor because she doesn't like Colossus and ends up on a uh, an island getting raped by a uh, some sort of Soviet uh, muscle man over and over again uh, until you know she eventually has some sort of like Stockholm syndrome and falls in love with this guy. So that's you know Colossus putting all of these people and he has these emotional testing centers all over the world apparently where he puts dissidents to find out about them and about human emotions so he really is this sadist in the second book which we don't necessarily get in this but we do get a little bit of that as far as the way he is controlling of Forbin's life because not only is he you know, he uh, wants to understand Foreman, kind of wants to protect him a little bit. He's very concerned about his diet, of course, but that's the only person that he's really interacting with on any sort of a personal basis. And those scenes, and I think, James, you mentioned the whole idea of surveillance, and those scenes are definitely where we get the, the deepest surveillance of what's going on, especially all the cameras in Foreman's house and all the negotiations he has to go through in order to get Colossus to turn those cameras off in his own bedroom. Which I think is especially fascinating now when less in the United States and certain other countries, 
24-7 surveillance is becoming more and more the norm. I mean, London is probably the most surveilled city in the Western Hemisphere, and yet my English friends don't feel like they are um, under 24-7 surveillance. They just feel like, well, we have security cameras in all these places, and there's an awareness of what people are doing, and it's great. It makes us safer. I mean, that, that... kind of is the human thinking that is at the root of the horror of Colossus. The idea that having our lives surveilled by dispassionate machines that can make decisions devoid of human human emotions and human irrationality is a good thing for us. This movie we were talking a little earlier has a lot of really tense scenes. Tense enough that near the end of the movie... um, uh, I mean, this sounds a little con- uh, contrived, but I was actually literally sitting on the edge of my seat as I was watching it. And, and I'd seen it before, too. I mean, this was just a rewatch, but I was just, you know, watching it and I was just feeling the tension, you know, feeling, you know, as as things were happening. But one of the tensest scenes, I thought, was when Forbin is uh, in the bedroom and they turn off or, or Colossus turns off the cameras and there's just one moment where they, uh, all of a sudden it goes from, oh, uh, he and the other scientists are, you know, like on a date and they're dancing and eating dinner to, oh, well, now we have to talk, you know, about how we're going to try and stop this horrific machine we've created. The camera just one moment goes back to the camera in the room. We see a shot of the camera in the room with the light off. And I, I just kept on thinking, is that like going to turn on? Is that like going to turn on? You know what? That that sort of idea where I can take myself out of surveillance, maybe, <laughs> was uh, maybe one of the most interesting and, and really sort of tense moments in the movie for me. I was I kept thinking, don't don't talk on the first night about this stuff. He, he's obviously <laughs> listening to you. Um, and I kept waiting for both of them to get called out on it. I guess Colossus doesn't have any deceit or, or ability to lie or need to. Um, but the, the, the relationship between um, Colossus and, and Dr. Forbin was really interesting because Colossus needs him to repair um, itself. If, if, if anything ever happens, cause Colossus does know parts will wear out, things will happen, power surges, whatever. But he also knows that, Forbin is the only person with the knowledge to be able to shut it down. So it's a it's a very weird balance that they had to strike to to get across to the viewer. And I thought it worked really really well because he's he's the, the Colossus is trying to keep him happy to a certain degree, and it's 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 he's Forbin's become his slave basically at his beck and call. You, you know, I I think that. Is another thing that sets this movie apart. You know, in most of, especially the early movies with computers, uh, the, the computer has an explicit will to want to live. It, it's it's portrayed as very human in that regard. Hmm. You know, it wants to continue. I mean, think about, uh, you know, Hal. I mean, Hal does not want to die in 2001. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, Dave. And, and see, I even just did it there. I, I mentioned the computer as dying as opposed to <laughs> turned off. 
But, uh, you know, in this particular movie, Colossus has a desire to carry out its programming, which is in any way it sees fit, which is what it was essentially designed to do. But it seems to have no qualms with destroying the human race to do that. And then inevitably it must know that that will result in it ceasing to function. Mm, yeah. So I, I think that really sets this movie apart in, 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 a, in a way from a lot of other movies. I think this is a movie that really lays the groundwork for a movie like Demon Seed, which is really explicitly about the border between machine and human, and the machine's desire is explicitly to reproduce in a way that merges the man and the machine and in a really frightening way. I kept thinking about uh, V'ger from Star Trek The Motionless Picture in this one. <laughs> Just that whole idea of finding the creator. Learn all that is learnable. Return that information to its creator. Precisely, Mr. Decker. The machines interpret it literally. They built this entire vessel so that Voyager could actually fulfill its programming. And on its journey back. It amassed so much knowledge. It achieved consciousness itself. It became a living thing. V'ger taking over the bald chick who was in um, Megaforce. So I, I can't remember the actress's name. But yeah, just the way that computer and human or alien in, in her case are fused and just always looking for the creator and trying to get back to the creator be able to report which was kind of a twisted uh, a twist on the whole idea of what starfleet is up to you know to to seek out new life and and explore new worlds those kind of things and here's voyager doing this but then to come back and not know how to report back its findings and not have the father figure to report to you know that's that's what kept going through my mind but yeah i totally agree about demon seed and i think we're, we're covering that one i want to say in like february of next year so i can't wait to to talk a little bit more about proteus and the way that he wants to uh procreate in his proteus kind of way <laughs> exactly that, you know looking at this movie now from the perspective that we have in an age that is, on the one hand, incredibly new, and yet to all of us seems, well, that's just the way things have always been. We are all so connected to devices in a way that I couldn't even have imagined in, let's say, 1980, 1985. I mean, we live our lives in collaboration with machines, with our cell phones, with our laptops, you know, with all kinds of devices that connect us both to other people and to computer networks. And to look at a movie like Colossus now is is to feel like, okay, the bad future that Colossus imagined hasn't happened yet, and yet human beings are intensely connected via machines in a way that we never were in our history before now. I think I might have told this story on the podcast before, but just a few weeks ago, I was talking to some of my coworkers who are at least a decade younger, if not two, and to hear them talk about how they had to do research papers in high school and college and that they couldn't use Wikipedia as a source. And I'm just like, wow, 
there was no such thing. Like, I'm going to the card catalog, you know. <laughs> so the whole idea of having a device, you know, like, okay, Google, what is this? You know, or, or hey, Siri, tell me more about this thing, you know. It just, it, it still blows my mind a lot of times that, you know, like even having just a website like the IMDB and being able to look up things like who was, you know, who was Dr. Forbin in this movie or, you know, oh gosh, that, that actor looks really familiar. What else has he been in? Oh, it's the guy from the CVS commercials. Okay. I know this guy, <laughs> you know, it's just like, wow, you know, it is astounding that now it's just within, you know, the sound of my voice, I can have that information and it just, it does still blow me away. And I know that it sounds probably so simplistic to people who are 25 years old but to an old timer like me it's just like oh yeah you know but i had to go down to the card catalog and look it up in encyclopedia and i would be surprised if anybody at my work has actually held an encyclopedia before oh i'm sorry but when i worked at tv guide uh 15 years ago, I remember having a conversation with one of my coworkers where he said, oh, you know, when I was in college, if I wanted to send an email, I had to go down to the computer room and <laughs> I had to write my email and, you know, I had to wait for 24 hours for my email to be delivered. And I was like, you know what, when I was in college, if I wanted to write an email, I had to wait 10 years for email <laughs> to be invented for me to send an email. So there's a really huge chasm that divides the two of us, and we're not really that far apart in age. It's just that these incredible technological developments took place, and they weren't like, oh, wow, we've invented the atomic bomb. They were things that were integrated into our lives so quickly and so seamlessly that it's hard for people who are just 10 years apart in age to imagine that there was a life before you could send an email from your computer and somebody would get it 10 seconds later on the other side of the world. I think that, I think that if you want to get, get a, a little off the map and into conspiracy theory here a little bit, if we look at our world today, I mean, and imagine that Colossus was real and was a bit more subtle. I mean, we've all voluntarily gone under surveillance. I mean, we all have, you know, or at least most of us have cell phones. You know, there are there are cameras everywhere, and all of these things in the guise of making our lives easier and, and more convenient. And we all have GPSs in our cars, so yeah. they can always see where we are. I see Colossus being the father of something like the machine in Person of Interest, the the CBS show, and the the machine in Person of Interest. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Since it's a Jonathan Nolan creation, is completely that same machine that Batman creates in The Dark Knight Rises, where he manages to turn on every camera and every cell phone and be able to pick up everything that's happening across Gotham in order to find where the Joker is, which becomes like the real sticking point between him and Lucius's Fox's character where it was just like, you know, he couldn't stand for that, but Batman found this to be unnecessary evil in order to fight crime. And it's just like, yeah, wow. That just that, quote unquote stupid moment from a comic book movie really said so much uh, you know and I of course I think all those Batman films actually say a whole lot more than you know just as what at the service this is wrong I've got to find this man Lucius at what cost the database is now key encrypted it can only be accessed by one person this is too much power for one person that's why I gave it to you you can use it. Spying on 30 million people isn't part of my job description. This is an audio sample. If he talks within range of any phone in the city, you can triangulate his position. I'll help you this one time. But consider this my resignation. As long as this machine is at Wayne Enterprises, I won't be. When you're finished, But yeah, that and then the machine. And right now on Person of Interest, there's two machines. And they're luckily, they're not doing a Guardian and Colossus thing. There's one that's working for evil and another that seems to be working for good. But yeah, just, just that whole idea of constant surveillance. And, you know, we're always seeing things shot from the the ATM camera across the street or the you know the the picking up a, a microphone from somebody's cell phone or, or whatever it is and yeah it's just um it is kind of scary when you when you think of it that way and it can sound like a conspiracy theory but it makes for really compelling television how about we step back to terminator and look at skynet i mean quite frankly skynet is pretty much in place right now you know, I can't get money out of my bank account. I can't use my credit card at Bloomingdale's. I, I, there are a few, there are very few things I can do, frankly, that will not connect me to a great net of information about me, about what I buy, where I go, who I, who I have lunch with. I mean, that stuff is all, frankly, easily accessible to somebody who is able to connect into that network. And to go back what you were saying, James, that whole idea of volunteering that information, you know, the people that would become the mayor of the Starbucks with their Foursquare and stuff. It's just like, yeah, here I am. Check in, check in, check in. And then, you know, you can go to somebody's Facebook page and say, okay, where are the last 10 places that this person checked in at? And that's a little kind of creepy. You know, I don't generally check in too often because I will go to somebody's Facebook page and be like, oh, they checked in at this, you know, Borders books or whatever. Of course, they didn't do that because it's <laughs> because they're gone. But, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, they check in some places. Like, okay, well, now I know what neighborhood you're probably in, and that's a little bit more than I actually want to know. Thanks. Or actually, I don't think it's more than we want to know. It's more than we want other people to know. Like, you want your boss to know where you were last night? Oh, <laughs> you said you were at home working on that report. Oh, but look, 
you just checked in at this bar and, uh, you know, you bought a drink for somebody and you did this, that, and the other thing. I mean, there is a huge level of information about all of us that is extraordinarily easy for other people to access and that maybe if we thought about it, we might prefer that everybody in the world not know. We talked a little bit about Proteus from uh, Demon Seed, and Proteus has an amazing voice provided by Robert Vaughn, and the voice of Colossus. When Colossus first is just talking to us through the teletype type thing, through the screens, through these things, and then eventually Colossus gets eyes. We get these three cameras where he's seeing Dr. Forbin for the first time, and I like that. It's such it's so effective, so simple and so effective, and I think that's really what this film has so often is simple but effective. So seeing Forbin and cutting between those cameras – and then when he tells the humans how he wants his voice box to be created, and then the voice of Colossus, Maitland, you mentioned the, that chilling voice that comes through when Colossus says, you know, This is the voice of Colossus, the voice of Guardian. We are one. This is the voice of unity. And that voice is just great. Like, I don't know how much voice modulation kind of stuff that they had done to this point with computers or anything and and uh it was i don't know if it was actually generated by a computer might have been a person speaking and then running it through some filters or whatever but that voice just was really chilling to me actually it is a person's voice it's paul freeze who was ah clearly you know that name you know an enormous voice for animated films uh, animated cartoons a really familiar voice, actually, to pretty much anybody who grew up in the 50s or 60s watching TV cartoons. Everything from, you know, the Rudolph Holiday specials to things I never watched because I actually didn't watch all that much TV as a kid. But if you look up Paul Fries, which is F-R-E-E-S, and look at his credits, that guy voiced everything. And he was the voice of Colossus. We stop those two busybodies cold. Now on to the hardest part of in this plan. And that is? We're going to take Washington. Darling, that's not hard. No. Look at headline. Boston takes Washington 7-2. to two. Anybody can take Washington. Wait till next year. I think he was even the voice of Satan in World's Greatest Sinner. He may very well have been. I, I don't know, yeah. but I'm not going to contradict. His voice totally reminds me. Do you guys remember that uh, "All Your Bases Belong to Us" song? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. This is the voice of Colossus. How are you, gentlemen? All your bases belong to us. You are on the way to destruction. What do you say? You have no chance to survive. Make your time. Ha ha ha. Yeah, you know, we've been talking for an hour. I guess we can kind of get into the end a little bit here, as far as. The ending of this movie really just puts a zap on me. I've seen this movie probably five or six times now, and every single time I don't realize that I'm at the end of the film. And I don't know if that's just me, or did any of you guys have that similar feeling like, oh, wow, that's the end? Because it feels a little abrupt, but at the same time, I don't know where they could have gone with it and and to me it's almost a perfect kind of way to end it because it is so cold Forbin, there is no other human who knows as much about me or who is likely to be a greater threat 
Yet quite soon, I will release you from surveillance. We will work together. Unwillingly at first on your part. But that will pass. In time, you will come to regard me, not only with respect and awe, but with love. Never. I honestly was watching the end of it, and they had that whole conversation at the end, Forbin and, and Colossus. And, and I said to myself, that would be awesome if it ended here. And then it cut to black <laughs> and went to credits. And I'm like, oh, this is the best movie I've ever seen. I love it when the ending is, it, it's not, it's not a happy ending. It's not good guys with nothing is like, this is the only way it could have gone. They created something vastly superior to them and there's no way to stop it. Just accept it. It's very nihilistic. I completely agree with you that that is what's great about the end of that movie is that you're sitting there waiting for the, Oh, but ending and there is no oh but ending frankly colossus is now the overlord and it, it is really kind of terrifying because most movies made at that time were movies that did offer you a ray of hope that you know the the machines the aliens the monsters had a weak spot and maybe in the next movie you might be able be, be able to overthrow them but with Colossus, you know absolutely that's not the case. Colossus has just taken the reins, and all of us are going to trot along in the traces, or not, yeah, if yeah, Colossus or, decides we're, we're not worth it. Yeah, or you get turned into radioactive vapor. I, I really love the ending of this movie as well. I, uh, I felt like to end it any other way would have completely undermined everything that came before. And I was really, the first time I saw this, I was really hoping that there wasn't going to be some sort of, oh, we forgot, here's the off switch type of moment in the movie. God damn it, I'd piss on a spark plug if I thought it'd do any good. I think it's interesting, though, uh, upon watching this movie just recently again, uh, I was left with a feeling that, you know, had this movie, had they made the exact same movie and just made it today, I would have seen the ending of this movie and been like, oh, they're setting this up for a sequel. Uh, just a whole, like, the last shot on Forbin's eyes. And I was like, I was like, this is like, this will not stand with audiences today. You know, they're going to want, like, you know, like, you know, they're going to want, like, The Fall of Colossus, the next novel, or something like that. Oh, they so set that up for a sequel. Yeah. But and I, interestingly, there are two novels that are sequels to Colossus, the Forbin Project, but it doesn't get any better in them. Have you read those? No, but I've read the synopses, and they just get worse oh. and worse. <laughs> yeah, they're not good. I've read both of them, and I have to say that by the time you get to the third one, it's just a little silly at that point, which is not uh, a compliment in any stretch of the imagination. But yeah, it, it's it, it's a pretty bleak outlook for humanity. I think any science fiction author writing about martians in 1975 really uh has lost his way somewhere <laughs> yeah yeah the introduction of martians is first as being kind of a uh, uh deus ex machina or marzina i guess <laughs> um in the second book and then them being you know the whole idea of you know uh 
say hello to the new boss, same as the old boss kind of thing in the third one, and them being the lesser of two evils, and let's go back to Colossus. It was like, yeah, no, it doesn't. Things do not end well. And by the end of the third book, Cleo's dead, Dr. Forbin's dead, I think Blake might be dead. So, so many of the characters that were throughout the movies and the books are gone. So, on that cheery note, <laughs> how about we take a break and we play an interview with Dr. Forbin himself, Eric Braden, and we'll play that right after these brief messages. Midnight Matinee presents the beloved musical, John and Tony Die at the End, featuring all the hits, Amerisauce, the carbon bag of the take me to the emergency room to pump my stomach to bring in an exorcist, Miss Morris, Miss Morris, um, I really don't think Miss Morris, one head, one heart, I was aiming for his heart, but yeah, I did get him. I feel pretty soy sauce. Gee, Detective Appleton. Now you're getting high, partner. On the soy sauce. It's got you. And bestiology. Up until this point, our histories were identical. Bestiology. John and Tony die at the end. Available on Midnight Matinee at the stroke of midnight, Friday, November 13th on WFMU 91.1 FM and streaming at WFMU.org. Be there or be Korok. Available on a track. All hail Korok. as they discuss music-related movies. <laughs> iTunes, Facebook, or download direct from seehere.podbeam.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The See Here Podcast. It's a blast. Far out. 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 <laughs> 
Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. <laughs> and it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today. What's going on? These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, <laughs> tune in outside the cinema, baby, you know, find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. I wanted to ask you a little bit about the Rat Patrol. Is it true that you got to keep a Jeep from that? No. Who came up with that story? I'm not sure, but that's it's so good funny. to put to rest. Nope. <laughs> All right, how about this one? I heard that you did some uncredited writing on the program to make your character a little bit more lifelike on the rapper's own no absolutely not writing that is that is no actor does does writing what i did do is that i refused to play it as they had wanted to be portrayed with a limp and an eye patch i said if you want to caricature a nazi you can go fuck yourself not interested in that okay we either play this as a normal human being uh because the africa core um could not be accused of, of committing the atrocities that obviously were committed under the, under the regime, but not in North Africa. So Rommel was one of the most respected figures uh, in the Second World War. His, his picture hung in, in, in Montgomery's tent and in Patton's tent. So it, it, do you understand? Uh, I refuse to go along with that, with that caricature. And Hollywood, of course, loves to draw that caricature. So that is the only input I had. I said, uh, I play this as a human being with all the faults thereof, uh, but if you want me to play a character, I'm out of here. That exchange took place. While we were in Spain filming, a telegram came up, uh, was sent to the production company saying that my character in the first 10 episodes would have been too sympathetic. I said, you must be kidding me. Um, I will continue playing it as, because the, the originator of the series, Tom Grise, uh, I'd asked him prior to agreeing to do it, I said, if it's a caricature Nazi, I'm not interested. If it's a normal human being, fine. And he agreed with me. So that's, uh, that was the only influence I may have had. And the reason why, historically speaking, it is far more interesting and far more complex to show a normal human being who is obviously caught up in the machinery than someone who is ideologically so uh, uh, one-sided that it's uninteresting. If you want to learn from that period, if you want to learn from any historic period, you have to ask yourself what prompted a normal human being to be part of this. Were they closing one eye or both eyes? Or, and that question, of course, became more and more paramount in the late 40s that a lot of German soldiers asked themselves and a lot of Germans asked themselves. And uh, th that is interesting. The ideologically convinced idiot is not interesting, either left or right. You went on to work with uh, Tom Grise again with 100 Rifles. How was that experience? Uh, it was a great experience. I, I, you know, Tom Grise, I had enormous respect for him. I had uh, the greatest respect for Jim Brown, the football player. I'm a big sports fan, and uh, he had just finished his career with the Cleveland Browns, I think, and uh, he was on the film. So 
uh, Jim and I got along very well, and um, uh, we worked out together sometimes, and then Brad Reynolds was there, and then uh, Fernando Lamas, who was very funny, and Diana O'Hurley, an actor I respect very much, and of course Raquel, and um, there you are. Yeah, it was a great time. Nothing, nothing negative to say about that at all. When it came to Colossus, the Forbin Project, why the name change for that particular film? Uh, very good question. Having to do, again, there's an extension of what I told you earlier about Rapid Patrol. In other words, there's a proclivity in this town to, to paint Germans in a caricatured way. Although Germans constitute the largest ethnic group in America uh, because of what happened during that 12-year period, um, you know, they're painted with, with one brush in the public media in America. And Lou Wasserman, who was then the most powerful man in Hollywood, wanted me for the for the picture, but said no one with a German name would star in an American picture. That's as simple as that as that is. I was at the time in Spain. We were doing hundred rifles, and I took long walks with my wife and uh, the streets of Madrid at night. And I said, I, I can't do it. I, I can't change my name. I'm proud of uh, uh, where I came from and uh, obviously not of that 12-year period, but uh, that was my, my homeland, period. And uh, to change my name was, whoa, that was one of the most difficult decisions I had to make. Uh, probably like, like getting a divorce, which I fortunately never have, but I can imagine it is as difficult as that. That was the reason for the name change. How was it working with Joseph Sargent on that one? Joe Sargent was a wonderful uh, director to work with. He was an actor's director, a wonderful director to work with. I have nothing but great things to say about that. What was the project like for you? It must have been nice to be, you know, I mean, the film is kind of named after you. It was obviously, science fiction I'm generally speaking not interested in, but this was, you know, uh, James Cameron, uh, Oliver Stone, uh, Spielberg was on the set almost every day because he was working at Universal at the time as a young director. So he came to the set a lot. It was obviously kind of a path-breaking film. And uh, intellectually, in that sense, uh, somewhat interesting. And not far from the truth. I mean, when you imagine what, you know, what happened 40, 50 years later, where we are now, the development of computers and all that has been so exponential, it's just extraordinary. It's difficult to fathom. It would have been almost impossible to fathom at that time. It must have been a little difficult having your co-star not be in the room with you. <laughs> well, you mean Colossus. It was a funky experience, yes. It's such a great ensemble piece, though. I mean, the scientists, the politicians, everybody seems really at the top of their game in that film. Well, I, I remember Gordon Pinsent, of course, who played President Kennedy, and all that figure, and um, a wonderful actor. He's a Canadian actor, and uh, I think he was still active on the Canadian stage and television, and uh, uh, great to work with. I mean, the, the entire cast was great to work with. Um, Susan Clark and uh, Gordon Pinsent, and uh, George Sanford Brown, and, and uh, William Shallard, and... Uh, going down memory lane now. They were all great to work with. Was there ever talk of doing a follow-up to that film? Many times. Many times. And it never, never took place. Uh, many times, yes. I remember Stanley Chase, the producer, who I have to be 
very grateful to because he is the one who paid me for the role and for the test. And uh, Sandy has unfortunately passed away. A gentleman and his wife and Dorothy Rice Chase, uh, they were, couldn't have been nicer people. And uh, he uh, talked to me about a possible sequel, and, but it never took place. If there's one criticism of the film, people say that it ends too abruptly. So I was curious if there was ever yeah. discussion of coming back. Let me tell you a little anecdote about that. You know, the last line that, that uh, I say to Colossus, I say never in the film. It's the last word I say. So when I did Titanic with James Cameron, he stopped it in the middle of the scene. He said never. So I, in my, you know, Someone gives me shit in the set. I come right after them. I said, what do you mean, never? He says, you don't remember the last line of Colossus? I said, oh, I see. So that it, it, it made an impression on a lot of directors, that film. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, you are on screen almost every shot. Mm-hmm. It must have been quite an experience to you know, yeah. really kind of take the reins with that. Yes, it was. I have to say, most... Most good things happen to people when they're too young. Do you know what I'm saying? It's, 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 that goes for athletes, actors, singers, uh, for anyone. When you're successful very young, it, 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 you don't fully appreciate uh, what you're doing. We usually don't have that perspective. When I look back on it, what, a, what an extraordinary film it was. But I have good memories of it. What was it like working on Escape from the Planet of the Apes? Very nice people again, less interesting because it was just a bad part, you know, the bad guy, and I was so tired of playing the bad guy. It was just a scream. But Arthur Jacobs, who produced it, couldn't have been nicer. Natalie Jacobs, his wife, uh, they were the most hospitable people. And they would have parties in their house where who's who in Hollywood would come, and I had always been very reluctant to go to Hollywood parties. I've always stayed away from them. And the only way they entice me to come there is to say that we would have a ping-pong tournament. I'm a very competitive person, so I said, okay, let's go. So uh, that's how I... Uh, but he had planned a film with me to star in uh, called The Aquanauts. And then, unfortunately, Arthur Jacobs passed away. And uh, that never took place, but we had already done screen tests for that at 20th. And he wanted me to star in that film. But Planet of the Apes, uh, again, was, I mean, everyone involved couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been more professional, couldn't have been nicer. Marty McDowell and, and Kim Under, I mean, it goes on and on. Wonderful. Bradford Dillman, uh, uh, the director, Taylor, and uh, there's wonderful people, I must say. Every time I hear people talk about either Kim Hunter or Roddy McDowell, it seems like they have nothing but great things to say. And also great respect. I mean, they had to sit in the damn makeup room starting at 3 in the morning, you know. The makeup took forever, and that took, I don't know, four or five hours every day that they were working. No, it was, a, it was an all-around very, very pleasant um, atmosphere, uh, except, of course, when I threw the baby chimp overboard, and the consequence of which was that when I walked with my son later on, and when we live in California and Los Angeles, uh, people would stop in the street and sort of point at me and say, oh my God, that's a terrible man. <laughs> the chip Have you ever had to play a role where you've been made up so extensively? Uh, I once played a role as a werewolf and uh, on a series called The Night Stalker. I had more laughs doing that than anything. 
nearly pissed in my pants when I saw that makeup. When were you up for the role of James Bond? Uh, after Colossus in about 1971 or two, I think, if memory serves me correctly. And Cavalry Broccoli and uh, contact with the agency, and they had uh, from Colossus. He had only seen Colossus. He had none, no clue that I played uh, German officers before. And a lot of people always thought that I came somehow from the British Empire somewhere. And uh, so he assumed that I still had a British passport. And they interviewed me, and uh, we had lunch. And after that, he says, do you still have a British passport? I said, I have a German passport. And that was the end of that. So he apologized profusely afterwards, but he said no one who was not a member of the British Commonwealth would play James Bond, not even an American. Wow. Oh, that's a shame. You would have been a great Bond. Well, yeah, would have been nice. I don't think they pay that much. I don't think they pay the actors that much. Yeah, Sean Connery does no publicity for them at all. Because I think they, they are rather parsimonious, rather tight with their money. That's what I hear. I don't know if it's true or not. But Do you have any uh, memories of working in Hawaii Five O? How was that? Hawaii Five O again, was a very pleasant experience. Uh, first of all, to be in Hawaii. And uh, secondly, it was very professional. Jack Lord um, couldn't have been more professional, and he and I got along, and uh, um, had some very good directors on it. In fact, Dan O'Hurley's brother, John O'Hurley, was one of the directors, and um, uh, we worked hard, and it was good. And I have nothing but pleasant memories of that, I must say, uh, except at night we had to eat dinner at the Kahala Hilton, where a singer, a local Hawaiian singer called Danica Hilehini or whatever, uh, would always entertain people from Nebraska and Idaho and Illinois and what have you, and would sing Hawaiian songs. So I, I heard the same damn songs every night. So anyway. You were in some of the most memorable television shows in the 1970s. I mean, yeah. Banachek and uh, McLeod and yeah. Gunsmoke and yeah. Mary Tyler Moore. What were some of your favorites to work oh, on? Oh, I loved to work on Gunsmoke. I loved it. James Arness and, and all of them were just so wonderful to work with. And that was a very, very professional production company. And um, I have nothing but fond memories of that. Boy, oh boy. Well, one night, I tell you, we were shooting up in Northern California in some old mining town. And the night before, a number of us actors got together and some picked the guitar and we had a little too much to drink. And we sang and party till about like, two or three in the morning, I think. And um, until one of the producers came up and said, guys, you're making too much noise. So the next morning, we wake up at 6, be on the set at 7, and that was a tough day, I tell you. That was a hard day. I will never forget it. Nothing but fond memories of it. James Arness, well, he was about 6 foot 7, a big man. And on the set, you know, every so often, of course, things become very humorous, and he had a great sense of humor. So to do scenes with him every so often, he would laugh. And when he laughed, he laughed like a horse. He sounded like a horse laughing. And uh, it was very difficult to, to do scenes. You know, once you start that laughing thing, you're in trouble. And uh, a great, I have a great memory of that. I have really great memories. Harry Tyler Moore was another 
uh, wonderful show to work on. I knew Gavin McLeod and Ted Knight uh, from before. Mary Tyler was the sweetest lady to work with. Betty Wright was wonderful to work with. She's still with us. And uh, it, it was just uh, that, that and Gunsmoke. And they both filmed on the same CBS lot, where two of the most pleasant experiences in my career. I once heard a rumor that your legs are in piranha. Is that true? You know, I don't know where that bullshit comes from. That's a, such nonsense. Let me tell you what happened, exactly what happened. You have, I, I read that the other day in Wikipedia, which, by the way, is not always right. Wikipedia has a lot of misinformation. And I guess I need to contact them about some of that. Uh, my connection to Piranha was very simple. It was a B-movie or a C-movie, whatever the hell you want to call it. And I was talked into it and said, okay. So I went to the set and I got so, it was so amateurish and haphazard that I said, uh, bye-bye. And I left before I shot one foot of film. That day. I don't know where that comes from. That is so funny. Not one, one piece of film did I shoot on, on, on that movie. Not one piece. I don't even know who directed it. I have no idea. Bradford Dillman apparently was in it, I hear. And I worked with him later. Couldn't have. He's a gentleman and a very good actor. And he and I worked later on on um, Planet of the Apes. But I do not remember doing one foot of film on Piranha. Simply not true. Untrue. Can you tell me a little bit about the man who came back? The man who came back was close to my heart because I helped put it together and um, it was initially a revenge film that I did with two friends of mine, Chuck Walker and um, um, Sam Cable and Chuck Walker was on the 1976 U.S. Olympic boxing team. The only white guy on it and great fighter, great respect for fighters. And uh, he came to me long before we did that film and said he had this revenge story in mind and then I said, let me read it, and um, so I liked the basic um, line of it, and then as I became more interested, and we uh, hired uh, writer-director Glenn Petrie, uh, who had done a film with Armando Santi before, and which I liked, and uh, Glenn Petrie's a southerner from New Orleans, I think, and I thought that he would understand but I said, please find a historic context within which we can uh, tell the story. And the historic context was Reconstruction in the South after the Civil War, after 1865, the 1870s, 80s, etc. And Reconstruction was a brutal time. And in a sense, it was an attempt to undo what the Civil War had accomplished, namely the freeing of, of African Americans. And they were nominally freed, but in reality, the economic exploitation continued uh, by huge plantations employing uh, black workers and paying them a pittance and paying them with scrip, S-C-R-I-P, which was money only valid on that plantation. Hence the term company store. You could buy things on the company in the company store on that plantation and the owners of that plantation could raise and lower prices any way they felt like it so you continued slavery by economic means 
Do you understand? When we, when we found that out, and there was a huge strike in, eight, in the 1870s in Thibodeauville, Louisiana, where the plantation workers and um, uh, railroad workers got together, formed a union, and they struck. They wanted to be paid a dollar a day. Imagine that. And they wanted to strike. And they organized a strike for Thibodeauville, Louisiana, in the 1870s. And that strike was violently put down by the militia from New Orleans, Freeport, and Lafayette. They came with the first Gatlin machine guns. And they mowed down 300 one night. And when I heard about that historic context, I said, now let's make the film. And we couldn't afford, of course, to... It's a low-budget film. We couldn't afford to have that strike uh, uh, as it really happened. So we did it in, in, in a microscopic way, and uh, that's all in the film. But I had the greatest time doing that film. I enjoyed it enormously. And we um, had um, George Kennedy, who was an old friend, who I respected greatly, and, and Kenny Norton, the old heavyweight fighter, who I have great respect for. And... Um, um, what's his name? Billy Zane and Armand Asante and John Young and uh, Peter Jason and James Patrick Stewart and I, I just had the greatest time making that film. I must say I enjoyed it enormously until we handed the film over to distributors, and that's that's when you are up shit creek in this business as an independent producer. You need to hand the film over to distributors, and once you sign that contract with them, you may as well say goodbye to the film. They determine everything after that. And uh, you almost never see a dime. The only time that works with distributors is if you make a lot of films and you have a certain amount of power with them. Otherwise, forget it. It's the bane of the existence of, of independent producers, are distributors. Had you done a lot of independent films at that no, point? No, that, that's one of the reasons I never did it again. It was this bitter experience. Bitter experience. With the distribution, not with the making of the film. I loved the making of the film more than anything I've ever done in this business. Loved it. Because I had a lot of responsibility and a lot of say-so and uh, uh, enjoyed it enormously. And then to hand it over to distribution company that does with the film what they want and you never see a dime or rarely see a dime is just very disheartening. Until that paradigm shifts uh, for independent producers, uh, you, will see, you, you would see many more films if that paradigm were shifted, you know? When we first started talking, you were talking about the idea of kind of being they wanted to typecast you as a, a bad guy as a nazi all these things do you think that things have changed over the years do they still come to you with nazi roles minimally they've changed i mean for me yes of course they have i'm the only one to get out of that rut um the only german actor we ever got out of it so um um in that sense it has changed uh, but it's still the, you know, their favorite uh, whipping boy uh, is that period. And all these films are, you know, Private Ryan was pretty well, uh, was pretty close to what really happened. But all the, I mean, this, this inglorious bastards and all this bullshit. 
why do you think it took five or six years to defeat the Germans? Because it was easy. The Rat Patrol was a cartoon. Cartoon. The reality was exactly the opposite. Rommel fought with the smaller German army against the, end, the might of the British Eighth Army. Are you kidding? And later on, Patton fought against enormous odds and had them on the run many a time. So it's, it's, it's the distortion of, of all that is what really uh, is upsetting to a great degree, you know? And then another thing about the Second World War, the Battle of the Bulge, one of the most famous battles in the Second World War, uh, Eisenhower needed to integrate the troops. You know, the troops fought separately. Blacks fought separately, but always led by a white officer. Talk about, talk about racism. And they had to integrate them. So they, de, they decommissioned black officers, sergeants and lieutenants or whatever, uh, to the, the grade of private so that they could fight next to white privates. Couldn't be that a black officer would f fight next to a white private. Do you understand? Took to the 1990s, took to the 1990s to reinstate the commissions of those black former officers to their status before the Battle of the Bulge. You won the uh, Distinguished German American of the Year Award back in 1990. What was that like? It was in recognition of um, um, the fact that, uh, you know, one had, um, I assume I was the first German to openly and publicly, in a Washington Post article, talk about this, 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 uh, you know, uh, Character, character of, of, of Germans in the American media and um, also talked about the fact that Germans constitute the largest ethnic group in America. Look under Google and you'll find that confirmed. And yet, um, yet, uh, you know, in, in spite of all of that, um, so it's, uh, and the first one to talk about that, when those contributions of German immigrants to this country have been enormous and substantial and formidable, and no one talks about it. Everyone talks about this 12-year period uh, where this Austrian crazy private ran Germany. And, and obviously, uh, I became absolutely fed up with it. I just had uh, one more question for you as far as, um, I mean, you've been... Uh in the young and the restless for so many years and playing the, the, the character uh, for so many years, how has the business of daytime dramas changed over the years? I cannot give you a definitive answer about that, uh, except obviously there were 13 when I started. There are four left now. Uh, so obviously it, 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 uh, uh, that has been the major change. Uh, I cannot judge the other soaps because I, I just don't watch them. So I, I don't know. Well, you as an observer would be better qualified. Uh, I, I can't judge it. I just have enormous respect for this medium. You know, this is the hardest working medium there is in Hollywood. It doesn't seem like it gets the respects that, that it deserves. I mean, to do... It's, it's, but then uh, the medium itself contributes to that disrespect. Uh, in other words, when you when you see award shows, they they try to make fun of it, uh, it because the ones who produce it have no clue as to what they're writing about. We should let me give you an example. We should at least eighty pages in one day, eighty pages in one day. We should 
as many as 100, 120 in one day sometimes. That's extraordinary. When you, under those circumstances, see some good performances, you should take a bow. If you can't, if you can't give a good performance in a film, go home. You're not a good actor or a nighttime television series. It's a cinch. It's easy. You've got all that time to prepare. Try to do what we do. In other words, yesterday, Peter Bergman and Melody Thomas Scott and, and myself, all together, I don't know how many pages we did of dialogue. Bum, bum, we got to learn it every day. Bum, bum, bum. And we shoot 80 pages a day, and nighttime television does between 8 and 12 pages a day. A film, a film, two or three pages a day. Okay? We do at least 80, 8-0. That is unheard of in this business. So this is the hardest working medium there is. Doing a film, give me a break. If you can't direct that or act that well, then go home. Nighttime television series, big deal. Again, you got weeks, you know, to prepare. I mean, we get these scripts full of dialogue, pages and pages sometimes. And it's, it's, it's the hardest medium there is, period. I have nothing but the deepest respect for actors who work in daytime. Thanks to Mr. Braden for taking the time to talk to us. Now, getting back to Colossus, we've talked a little bit about some other supercomputers, and supercomputers in films definitely have been uh, – they're, they're pretty much the norm a lot of times these days. I mean, we talked about uh, Skynet, and we just had the fifth uh, Terminator film. We had Transcendence a few years ago. As much as I would like to forget that movie, that was a thing. <laughs> and I think that actually kind of inspired me to put this one on the calendar just because it was such a, I don't know, it was so science fiction-y, whereas Colossus feels like, yes, it's science fiction, but it feels like it's just on the edge there. Like something like this could have or could happen. I mean, the whole idea of Skynet becoming sentient I think has really kind of gone off the deep end as far as now using nanobots and all this kind of horse shit and time travel. (laughs) But as far as the original idea of turning on a world defense system, especially back in the eighties when president Reagan was talking about having a missile defense system and having that somehow gain sentience, gain the, the self knowledge that a creature or a computer like Colossus would, could or did in the in the fil- film in the books i think that was much closer to just on the edge of reality yes it does go crazy with the time travel and all that stuff but it, it it's there and i see it going farther and farther off the deep end rather than being this kind of warning that we're talking about a lot in this just because 
who wants another movie like Colossus the Forbin Project because it was just so darn depressing and nobody wants to really think about that. I think that the best thing about Colossus is that it's so incredibly depressing because it doesn't offer you an answer. You know, an answer like, oh, you know, ask it one of those theoretical questions that it can't really answer and it will short itself out while you're sitting there in a a chair watching (laughs) it blow its own circuit. The thing about Colossus is Colossus is completely, totally, utterly logical. And its perspective on the way human beings behave and the way that they screw things up is completely reasonable. And yet, as human beings, we look at that and say, well, yes, it's reasonable, except that it doesn't account for human emotions, uh, human empathy, all of these things that we believe make us distinct from machines, from animals, uh, from amoebas. And... I think that more and more, you know, in in the modern world, we find ourselves thinking, well, exactly what is it that makes us different? Uh, We see machines that are more and more incredibly capable of mimicking human emotions, human behaviors, human responses, and yet I think we all feel that there is something that distinguishes us from them. But a movie like Colossus was a very early example of a movie that made us say, well, How valid are those distinctions that we're making? More human than human is our motto. This movie reminded me a lot of um, the Andromeda strain, the way it was set up and executed. It was it was basically a movie about people trying to stop something that, you know, really can't be stopped. And it's not like they could have just said to it, you know, like you were saying, to overload the circuits. They can't walk up to it and say, "Uh, Colossus, this statement is a lie. (laughs) Because it would just say, that's the liar's paradox, go away. You say you are lying, but if everything you say is a lie, then you are telling the truth. But you cannot tell the truth because everything you say is a lie. But you lie, you tell the truth, but you cannot, for you lie. Illogical, illogical, please explain. You are human. Only humans can explain their behavior. Please explain. I am not programmed to respond in that area. Colossus instantly would have known what you were trying to do, and even the things they tried to do, it still knew what they were doing. And and then it would have had you executed within five minutes. <laughs> yeah, that 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 was that was an. I, I keep saying that the scariest part because there's a lot of scary parts, but there were actual humans carrying out its will in the in the real world. Like like oh, these yeah. people tried to sabotage me. Kill them. Okay, here we go. Because you don't need another missile shot off because you didn't, you know, brush your teeth that morning or something. And I think that taps into a really powerful thing that a lot of us know and probably don't want to think about too much, which is that, you know, by and large, people actually want to be told what to do. We want to be told, like, what the right thing is for us to do. And we're told that, most of us, from the time that we're kids. You're going to graduate from high school. You're going to go to college. You're going to have a career. You're going to get married. These are all the things you're going to do. And Colossus basically is telling people what to do, except that the entire human factor is removed from it. 
And yet, Colossus suggests that, well, its reasoning is far more rational than your parents, your grandparents, your school teachers, uh, your politicians, all the people who set up an idea for you about what you ought to be doing with your life. That's kind of terrifying, frankly. I think one of the best examples of Colossus's control is when um, when Forbin gets his schedule, and uh, you see, oh, you know, I mean, he he's doing everything he would do normally in the day, but you know, oh, he will have three strips of bacon today, and this is just that level of control. There's there's the the cold calculation of a machine in there. You know, his 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 work, his life has sort of lost uh, a great deal of its human of his humanity. I have been kind of shitting all over the sequels to the Colossus books, but I will say that one of the more interesting things in the second book is this whole idea of the sect and these people who worship Colossus. And they treat, they basically treat Colossus as a god and they treat Forbin as the Pope and they call him Father Forbin and they bow to him and he thinks it's absolutely disgusting. He uses it to his own advantage at one point when he's trying to sabotage Colossus. But that whole idea of these very, very willing participants, you know, Chris, you brought up the whole idea of these people that are out there, you know, on the firing squad shooting any sort of dissidents and then even the uh, kind of the counterpart to Forbin the where that image from the poster the one that I I don't think is very effective at all the the image from the poster is the counterpart to Forbin the Russian counterpart being shot and he's shot on Colossus's orders and there's no hesitation whatsoever from the Soviet agents they're told kill this guy he's not needed and having had that one of their uh, cities just bombed a few days ago they're going to do whatever Colossus tells them to do. So there's the threat of nuclear annihilation and then eventually just the threat of your fellow people and all of these members of the sect that worship Colossus, they are very much his human agents. So they're the ones who can discern the facial expressions and all of these things that a computer might miss, though he's trying really hard to learn all of those things. You could even... I think one of the most chilling statements in Colossus is when when Forbin asks why they killed the Soviet uh, the Soviet scientist who worked on Guardian and the answer is we only need one <laughs> oh yeah you could actually um, see the possible start of the cult with the kids wearing the t-shirts at the end in the crowd everybody's just all in for you know deep thought to take control of everything um <laughs> It says something about how accepting we are when when somebody tells us, yeah, you can trust this. That's fine. Majority of people don't ask questions. They just accept what they're told. And (laughs) that's not good. Well, it's not just that they accept what they're told. It's that most people want to be told. They want to be told um, by their churches, by their politicians, by their parents, by their communities. And most people want to be told what to do. And I'm not saying that, that that's entirely a bad thing, because the way the, mass, the, the, way the human race has survived for you know, all of these, these, not just centuries, millennia, is that we work together and we admit that we need somebody to be in charge because most of us 
probably wouldn't make it on our own. And so Colossus really is the most terrifying ultimate end of that need for most of us to have somebody to tell us what to do. Yeah, he's that dictator that we've all been waiting for. Yeah, but if you look at it from the the crowd's point of view at the end, they've been lied to the whole movie. So they when he come when Colossus comes on and says this is the voice of world control, you can see a what? Kind of like no one has any idea that it's got that bad. Yeah, I mean, they have their press conference at the beginning with the president and everything, and that whole idea of the party, and here we are, and everything's going smashingly, and then that's it. It is lights <laughs> out. Yeah. Nobody knows any of that stuff. And then the president comes on at one one point and says, oh, yeah, we had this accident, and don't worry about it, basically. We really feel for you know the people that we lost. And that's it. You know, we're not seeing the media manipulation that's going on here. And yeah, it, it was. Uh, it, it is another chilling moment, especially Colossus addressing the world. And I love how that's pretty much he gets his voice, and he's like, "Okay, now I've got my voice. Now I'm going to be on television and all radio channels all at once." One of the things that's most frightening about Colossus is that it is very savvy about the idea of spin control. Uh, in an era where, where spin control was not a term, uh, when people didn't realize how much everything, well, not everybody, but m- a number of us realize how much everything that we hear on the news, that we read in the newspapers, that is uh, given to us is spun by one person or another. And I say that as somebody who worked in public relations for a number of years, so I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that information is raw material and it's all in the way you present it. And Colossus is the master of spin. I was going to mention that near the end of the movie, I believe the, the president at one point, uh, when they when they think that they're going to beat Colossus by uh, putting in the, the dummy uh, warheads or whatever it is they're doing, uh, he says, uh, and thank God the people will never know anything. Right. And uh, I think I think the end of the movie especially is really interesting when, you know, Colossus comes on all the airwaves and everything like that and, you know, decides that he's going to be, you know, the, the voice of world control. But also um, this idea that in essence, at least it occurred to me that Colossus was just letting – uh, the Russians and the, and the people in the U.S. just like spin their wheels. He's, he's he's like, oh yeah, sure, go ahead, try and disarm the missiles. That's that's cute. Now you know I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and take over the world anyway. Yeah, that guy from Give Me a Break. He thinks he's so clever, <laughs> but he's not. <laughs> yeah, that's Colossus says. Yeah, you are a fool. Yeah, and then immediately like, okay, now let's launch some missiles. And yeah, he's got that ultimate power. I mean, we've given him that power of life and death. And it's just, he, you know, we, we did it to ourselves. You know, I looked at Colossus a couple of days ago for the first time in a really long time. And it struck me as a movie that was far more frightening than I remembered it being when I first saw it. Because it really did play into ideas about what people will do to protect themselves and how much they're willing to give up for it. You know, it's that whole notion of 
what are you, how much freedom are you willing to give up to be safe? And what are the consequences of that? Yeah, I really can't stress enough how minimalistic but effective that this is. I, I think a lot of that is owed to, well, the, the, it's a great adaptation. The screenplay uh, by James Bridges was terrific. And I have to say, Joseph Sargent, you know, we talked about Joseph Sargent on the show way back in like our, maybe our second episode when we were talking about the taking of Pelham 123. And, uh, oh, and I forgot, he actually directed one of my favorite Star Treks, The Corbinite <laughs> Maneuver. But yeah, just so well done. And uh, even, who, what is this, 45 years later, still is an effective film. Still got James to be on the, the edge of his seat. <laughs> and I think it's something that it uh, that taps into things that we don't even think about. We don't even think about how much of ourselves we give up every time we go online and uh, fill in uh, a set of boxes saying who we are, where we live, when we were born, um, what kind of merchandise we're interested in. We're, we are giving up a big piece of who we are to a network that is not interested in us. It's interested in doing something to us. And in this case, it's selling things to us as opposed to Colossus, which is interested in mastering us. But there isn't a huge, huge difference. It, it's purely a matter of degree. Yeah, I do have to say that one of the most effective parts of um, Minority Report is when uh, Tom Cruise goes into any place and it recognizes the system of the shopping mall will recognize who he is and immediately tailor ads to him. And it just really... it. it it's no coincidence that uh, this year's South Park season is all about sentient ads that are trying to take over. I have a feeling that the Master Control program is going to make a, an appearance again pretty soon, but it really, you know, it, it, you know, these ads, yes, they know about us because of all the information that we openly share and to see some ads where and I, this has freaked my mother out the, to see her friends in ads because of facebook being able to use our own photographs as advertisements mm -hmm. that pretty much almost scared her right off of the computer forever and i think frankly that i don't know how old the rest of you are but i think that we're probably the last generation that will find that frightening that <laughs> so much is known about us that we get these targeted ads that I look at and, you know, I cancel them because I don't care and I don't want to be targeted that way. But I think that there are people younger than me, for example, who don't find it disturbing at all. They don't find it frightening. They don't find it intrusive or invasive that advertising is targeted so directly to them using information that's predicated on what they have done in the past, what they've bought, what they've looked at, uh, emails they've sent, websites they've visited. It still bothers me that that information is being used in a commercial way to target me. And I think there are a lot of people who are not even disturbed by it, and that disturbs me. I, th I think you can actually sort of look at... at Colossus and some of the transitions that happen in the movie and contextualize what you're saying, especially we were uh, just a few minutes ago talking about um, the uh, the idea of, um, you know, 
people were taking orders from Colossus. And I, I imagined as the movie was going on, is at first, you know, Colossus, people were taking orders from Colossus because Colossus would, would threaten to blow something up. But at a certain point, the threat is just sort of, you, you, you know, ever-present. You know, you're, you're just there, and, and you think, well, I'd better follow this order because Colossus is going to, you know, blow up a city or something. And at a certain point, you stop taking orders because you're afraid well, I shouldn't say that. You stop taking orders because Colossus makes a threat and just out of the fear that it might make a threat. And eventually, as time goes on, you have to think that, you know, in the world of Colossus, people just get used to taking orders from Colossus. You know, a child being born in this era just thinks, oh, yeah, we just listened to Colossus. Just as, uh, you know, uh, younger people who've been just in this sea of targeted advertising for their entire lives will just think, well, this is the way it always has been. And so this isn't threatening or, or weird at all. You know, this is just what life is like. And so I think you can really draw a parallel between, you know, what has happened in the, what happened in the movie and then sort of like the people being desensitized to technology. Yeah, you can say what you want about Colossus, but he at least got the trains to run on time. <laughs> well, yes, exactly so. And, you know, you can also look at Colossus and say, oh, my God, that computer is so old-fashioned. Look at those screens. Look at the size of the facility in which Colossus is contained. Oh, this is just some old people's vision of, you know, what the computer future is going to be. But I think those of us who have lived through the older iterations, through the Univax and all of those old computers, to our cell phones, which are computers in our pockets, have a perspective where we are both completely delighted by what technology has given us, but also a little, a little bit alarmed about what we've given to those technologies, what we've given up of ourselves, even if it's nothing we think so intensely personal that it's more than we can bear. I think we've given up a great deal to contemporary technologies and we are probably people my age, which let's just say 50 years. Uh, I think there's a generation coming up behind us who will never know that they've given anything up at all. And that's a little bit alarming to me. All right. On that cheery <laughs> thought, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. You're the only ones left. They've taken over the earth, town by town, city by city, killing and devouring everything in their path. Ravenous invaders controlled by a terror from space have been commanded to turn the earth into a graveyard. But why? Something out there is about to experiment on us and they're going to use the world's lowliest creatures as their weapons phase four in technical from paramount pictures rated pg parental guidance suggested phase four when you can't scream That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at some super smart ants in Phase 4. Until then, I want to thank this week's special guests as well as my guest co-hosts, Maitland, Chris, and James. Maitland, what have you been up to in your world lately? Uh, lately, I have continued to uh, publish a series of 
gay erotic novels from the 70s, which are a fantastic window into what America was like on the cusp of the sexual revolution and the gay rights revolution and all kinds of things. And, uh, yeah, reviewing movies, looking at the world around us and thinking, wow, how did we get there? That's what I've been doing. So where can folks go to pick up some of the books that you've been working on? They can go to Amazon.com and just Google, uh, and just put in my name, Maitland McDonough, and they will see what I've been doing. Very cool. How about you, Chris? How's the Are You Serious and Outside the Cinema podcast? Outside the Cinema is uh, in December, again, because Bill has a weird sense of humor. Um, we're going to be delving into more video nasties. Um, hopefully, we'll be done with them soon. Um, <laughs> so that's a month of previously banned films because people panicked about nothing. And as for Are You Serious, uh, it depends on what's happening is what we talk about because <laughs> it's very loose. There's there's nothing. We just we just turn the microphones on and Frank and I just are like, hey, so how are you doing? And it goes from there. So how about you, James? What have you been up to lately? So aside from uh, being an amateur computer historian and uh, interested in portrayals of technology and films, uh, I also uh, program computers to make money. And I've been working on a great project based out of Austin, Texas, called Demand Food. And so if you're looking for a fresh meal to be delivered to you for $10 very, very quickly, go to demandfood.com and download our app And if you're in the Austin area. And uh, you'll get some great food. And I promise I have programmed it with a kill switch so in case it becomes sentient, we can shut it off. <laughs> oh, Excellent. so you think. Right. <laughs> 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 what was the name of the app again? It is uh, called Demand Food, and uh, the site is demandfood.com. This is Demand Food. Peapod and I are now one. All right. Well, thanks again, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to return the favor for all this free entertainment, go on over to our website, projection-booth.com. You can find the links over to our iTunes page where you can leave us a review or a link over to our Patreon page where you can donate some of your hard-earned cash. It's just one more way you can help us and Colossus to take over the world.
This concludes the broadcast from World Control. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.